Well, on June 6, 1944, Operation Overlord delivered five nasal, naval assaults. <laughs> nasal. Five naval assaults on five beaches in Normandy, France. The invasion included 7,000 warships manned by 195,000 soldiers from eight allied countries. So thousands of soldiers, vehicles, aircraft, and ships unleashed relentless fury on the enemy. That battle is known as D-Day. So the enemy was defeated, and yet the casualties were devastating. 10,300 soldiers killed. Horrific loss. However, D-Day is known as the great shift in World War II. So as the joys faded into the distance of continued combat, the hope of full and utter conquering of the enemy was clearly in view. Full and final victory is on the horizon. And yet difficulty, hardship, despair are all still realities of the war. In fact, the war would continue on for another 11 months. 11 more months of destruction and fear. Hardship was certain. But the hope of victory could not be extinguished. And so the soldiers had great hope in the face of hardship because they were certain of their future and final triumph. And on May 8th, 1945, it finally came. The enemy finally surrendered to the Allies, which was known as V-Day, Victory Day across the world. And so the Allies rightly celebrated. So what D-Day anticipated came to completion on V-Day. Full and final victory over the enemy once and for all. So what's my point? Well, my point is that victory was certain between D-Day and V-Day. And yet the battle still raged on. Bloody battle after bloody battle had to be waged. So hardship, despite the certainty of victory. Soldiers who are more than conquerors, despite difficulty. So what we're going to see in 1 Samuel 29 through 31 is that David conquers his enemies while Saul's conquered. So David's conquest points us all the more to our one true king, Christ, who saves the captive, who defeats death. So therefore, Christians can have hope and hardship because we are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ who loved us and gave himself up for us. So no matter what difficulty comes our way, whether it be physical suffering or spiritual difficulty, we need not fear. We need not lose hope because the Lord Jesus is the conquering king who promises victory both now and for all eternity. And so with all that said, open your Bibles with me this morning to 1 Samuel chapter 29. And so as you turn there, I want us to be looking at three specific points this morning. Number one, the conquering king. Number two, the conquered king. And three, more than conquerors. And so as you're turning there, beginning in that conquering king from chapters 29 and 30, I want us to just be thinking a little bit back to what we had seen last week, right? First Samuel 27 closed with a cliffhanger like from one of the old Batman TV shows. Will David, the anointed king, betray Israel and fight alongside their greatest foe? Will Achish see through the plans of his bodyguard David? 
Is this the ghastly end to our king after God's own heart? Answers tomorrow night, same bat time, same bat channel, or more like same Davidic time, same Davidic channel, da-na-na, right? So we pick up now in 1 Samuel 29 to answer this very cliffhanger. So just follow along with me as I read, starting in verse 1 of 1 Samuel chapter 29. It says, Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek, and the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. As the lords of the Philistines were passing on by hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were passing on in the rear with Achish, the commanders of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years since he deserted to me? I have found no fault in him to this day. But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him, and the commanders of the Philistines said to him, Send the man back that he may return to the place to which you have assigned him, and he shall not go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to the Lord? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? Is not this David of whom they sing to the one another in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. Right? So tensions are at a fever pitch. David and his men are lined up alongside the Philistines, ready to battle the Israelites. The only problem is that these four Philistine commanders don't want David anywhere near the action. Why? Because they don't trust David as far as they could throw him. So they urge Achish to send David packing. But just listen to their reason for sending him away. Verse 5. Is not this David of whom they sing to one another in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Right? Their reason is rooted in the song sung back in chapter 18 by the women who celebrated David's success. Against who? Against the Philistines. So it's a tune of death to the Philistine people. So yes, David isn't going anywhere near the battlefield if they can help it. But in the face of the commander's disapproval comes a rebuttal highlighting how David is A, blameless before his enemies. Look back at verse 3. Achish said, I have found no fault in him. Then verse 6. Then Achish called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you have been honest. And to me it seems right that you should march with me in the campaign. For I have found nothing wrong in you. Nevertheless, the lords do not approve of you. So back, go back now and go peaceably that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. And David said to Achish, but what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now that I may not go and fight against the enemies of the, my lord, the king? Verse nine, and Achish answered David and said, I know that you are as blameless in my sight as an angel of God. So Achish emphasizes that David's blameless. David is innocent before him. And he does this three times. There's no guilt to be found in this man. And yet Achish's rebuttal falls on deaf ears. So David's forced to return to Ziklag, roughly 15, 20 miles from the battle lines, which is the sweet providence of God. It's very sweet for David. Because this is the very same battle where Saul is going to fall at the hands of the Philistines. 
So David has the perfect alibi. He's got nothing to do with King Saul's death. And yet it's the means by which God will use to exalt his anointed King David to the throne of Israel. And yet as they travel back to Ziklag, there is unfortunate news that they come upon. David and his men go home to complete and utter devastation, which leads David to the next point of being be strengthened in God. First Samuel chapter 30, starting in verse 1. It says, Now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. Just take note here. David just conquered the Amalekites in chapter 27, verse 8. Right? It said there that David raided the Gersherites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. Okay, so just then look back at verse 1 here in chapter 30. So the Amalekites returned the favor here and overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire. And taking captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great, they killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Everything is gone. All their livestock, their wives, sons, daughters, they're all taken captive. It's a devastating scene here. Verse 4 says, The entire company rightly raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. Verse 5, David's two wives also had been taken captive. Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. So just picture this with me. You followed your leader through the wilderness. And now when you return home, you find fire and destruction. The Amalekites, these wicked people, have captured every single family member. Can you just imagine that for a moment? The devastation? You'd be broken. Shattered into a million pieces. Angry, confused. And that's exactly how they felt. And verse 6 says that David's greatly distressed as a result of their emotional difficulty here. Look what it says. David was greatly distressed because the people spoke of stoning him. The reason? Because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. David's distressed here because the people want to kill him. This is the mark of true and utter despair. And out of the overflow of their broken hearts spews the desire to kill their leader. And how does David respond? Does he just lash out in anger at them? No. The text says the people spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. You see that? We just read in verse 4 that David had no strength left due to his distress and grief. And now David strengthens himself in the Lord. Where David's strength fails, God's strength takes the helm. Which is similar language to what we heard back in chapter 23. Right when Jonathan came to visit David. When David's distressed about his father, Jonathan's father, Saul, coming to chase after him and kill him. And just listen to what chapter 23, verse 16 says that Jonathan does. It says, Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David and strengthened his hand in God. And what did he say to him? 
he said to him, Do not fear, David, for the hand of Saul shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. So in all likelihood, David's following Jonathan's wonderful example here. He recalls the promises of God and brings to mind who God is and what God declared. David, if God is for you, who can be against you? If your God is for you. Maybe even words similar to Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? The answer for David in times of severe distress is, I shall be afraid of no one. My God is for me. He is my salvation. He is my rescue. And so in the midst of devastation, despair, and impending death, David doesn't look to himself. That would have been easy to do, but he doesn't do that. No, where does he look? He doesn't look to mediums or necromancers like Saul. He doesn't run off and hide. He doesn't lay down and die. No, David's fear causes him to strengthen himself in the Lord his God so that he can see, rescue the captives. Look with me at chapter 30, verse 7. And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered him, pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. Now notice the chain of events. David strengthened in the Lord. He calls Abiathar the priest to get the ephod. And then he starts asking, seeking the Lord. Now what is the significance of David retrieving this breastplate, this, this object, this ephod? Well, the ephod is this, this breastplate with small pockets in it. And the purpose of the ephod was to give godly direction through godly means. So he's inquiring of God, asking the Lord for help. He's asking the Lord to see what he should do next, if he should pursue the Amalekites. And then verse 8 tells us that God answers him, right? Giving him the green light to attack, which is clear. And it's a clear sign of God's approval of David's pursuit, but also God's delight in his anointed king. Now, do you hear the difference between what we've seen with regard to David and King Saul, their actions in the last few chapters? In times of despair, David and Saul both sought supernatural guidance, didn't they? However, one defied God's word, whereas the other sought God in his word. And what's the outcome? Well, Saul's self-seeking led to receiving the promise of death, as we saw last chapter, last week. And David seeking the Lord led to the reception of life and future exaltation. And so with God's blessing, David goes after the Amalekites. 200 of the men end up, leaving, or end up staying beside a ravine because they're too tired to continue on, while the rest of the company moves forward. And so as they are moving on, they come across an Egyptian that's a servant to the Amalekites. He's a part of the raid. And rather than David and his men killing the Egyptian, no, they spare the Gentile. David feeds him, promises him safety. 
And then the Egyptian is called to bring them down to the Amalekite camp. And so he agrees. And then verse 16 says, When the Egyptian had taken David down, behold, they were spread abroad over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day, and not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. Now two observations here. Notice it is David who conquers. The author purposely repeats David's name six times in four verses. So David's highlighted as doing everything, everywhere. He is conquering these people. So it seems as though this isn't a group exercise, but a one-man show. He's a one-man wrecking crew. Second observation David is clearly the rescuer of captives. He rescues his bride by his might. Right? So that which was lost is found. And then verse 19 says, David brought back all and then some. Verse 20, David conquered, captured all the flocks and all the herds and the people drove the livestock before him. And what did they say? This is David's spoil. This is David's spoil. He is the conqueror. So David rescues his people and his brides from the clutches of death. And he doesn't incur any death upon any of his men. Right? They're all safe. So this king not only rescues the captives, but this conquering king, D, rewards his people. Now as we jump into verses 21 and 22, we're going to see that there's division among David's people. Right, Verse 22 says, All the wicked and worthless fellows who had gone with David, those are those who were in the battle, because they did not go with us, this is what they say, those who were too afraid, too tired to continue, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. How considerate of these men, right? Verse 23, But David said, You shall not do so with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Now here comes a faithful leader. right? He sets his men straight. He rebukes the foolishness coming from their mouths. Their assessment of who's worthy of reward is completely wrong. And so in verse 23, David declares, The Lord has given us the reward. He has preserved us. He's given the enemy into our hands. Right? So then what does David do on the basis of knowing this isn't our battle won. This is God who has done the work. He graciously rewards all his people without distinction. And the basis of distribution is not based on risk. It's not based on success or masculinity, but simply membership in the community. That is what makes you a participant in the rewards of this king. And then verse 26, David sent part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah and the rest of the southern part of the region. 
So there isn't an inch of land touched by the feet of David that's not showered with gracious gifts. He gives not only those who are in the battle, not only those who are by the ravine relaxing, being nourished, but those who are not even near the war. Now let's just step back and see how the author sets the stage for the way of the anointed king. As we were told in chapter 8, worldly kings will take, right? They're going to take anything and everything. But David is radically different than worldly kings. He gives and he gives and he gives. This generosity is absolutely astounding. Lavishly pouring out good gifts on his people. He's a king after God's own heart. He mirrors his master. His heart flows in compassion and mercy. Steadfast love. Grace upon grace. So this conquering king is a good king. But as good of a king as David appears to be, he ultimately points to an even greater king, the Lord Jesus Christ. The father's true anointed king. The one who was entirely blameless before his enemies, including Pilate, who declared hours before Jesus' death that he found no guilt in that man. And then moments of distress... And terror in the Garden of Gethsemane, the Lord Jesus was strengthened in in the Lord for he knew the truths of God's word. He'd be humbled to the point of death with the great promise that God the Father would highly exalt him and bestow on him the name that is above every name. And it is Jesus who is the rescuer of sinners. He captured the bride. He rescued the captured bride. He lived the perfect life that the bride could never live. He died the death that the bride rightly deserved to die. And he rose from the dead, conquering sin, death, and the devil to give us freedom forevermore. The the captive bride has been rescued by the king of all kings. And Ephesians 4, 7 through 8 tells us that he didn't just rescue setting the captives free, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he did what? He gave gifts to men. So Jesus is the true and better king who gives and gives and gives to all who come to him. Dear believer, Do you see your king clearly this morning? Do you see the Lord Jesus? Are you amazed at who he is and what he's done? Is your heart burning within you as the disciples on the road to Emmaus from Luke 24? All the scriptures, including 1 Samuel 29 and 30, shine a spotlight on the splendor and the glory and the majesty of our champion, of our victor, of our king, the Lord Jesus. And so the right response for the Christian this morning is awe of who he is. So David is, number one, the conquering king. And as we'll see, Saul is, number two, the conquered king. But before we look at chapter 31, I want you to think back to Hannah's song in 1 Samuel chapter 2 because it's critical to the narrative. Chapter 2 Verse 6 says, the Lord kills and brings to life. 
He brings down to Sheol, right? The place of death. And he raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. Verse 9, he will guard the feet of his faithful ones. But the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. And listen to this. He will give strength to his king. And exalt the horn of his anointed. So what Hannah declares in song is exactly what's taking place in chapters 30 and 31. In chapter 30, the lowly David is exalted. And in 31, King Saul's conquered. He's cut off in darkness. Why? Because verse 9 tells us, not by might shall a man prevail. And we're going to see this as we look at A, a godless battle, and B, Saul's hopeless death. So first, A, a godless battle. Let's just pick up the narrative in chapter 31, starting in verse 1. It says, Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Geboah. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malkishua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. So the Philistines overpower the Israelites in every way here. Right, to the extent that now Samuel's curse from chapter 28 is coming to fruition. Samuel, who was brought forth from the dead, said in verse 19 of chapter 28, the Lord will give Israel into the hands of the Philistines, and tomorrow, tomorrow, you and your sons shall be with me. With me where? In death. So Samuel's promise from less than 24 hour, hours ago takes place. And we see the destructive nature of Saul's life right before us. He leads his sons and his armor bearer to their deaths. And Israel, of course, is decimated at the hands of the enemy. But notice with me that this battle is waged without God. It's a godless battle. Right? Have you noticed that he's, God's not anywhere in this passage? God's not mentioned a single time. God does not provide, protect, or deliver Saul because God's against him. God will not fight Saul's battle. Which makes total sense if we remember 1 Samuel 2, 9 and 10. God will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but, contrast, the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Saul's feet aren't being guarded. He's not one of God's faithful ones. No, he's wicked and therefore he's going to be cut off. So we are looking at a dejected and self-consumed king staring in the face of his own demise. Which brings us to be Saul's hopeless death. Verse 4 continues here. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword. And thrust me through with it. Lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men on the same day together. Listen to the request that Saul makes here. 
He wants his death to come on his terms. Even in this moment of despair, Saul is self-consumed. He turns to his own armor bearer in order for him to kill him, but the armor bearer doesn't want to do it. And so what does Saul do? Well, in his despair, he dies a cowardly death. He commits suicide. It's a horrific scene. And purposely so. Saul's kingdom is a kingdom of death and despair. And this death isn't just physical, but it's also symbolic. Tim Chester highlights the symbolism and he says, the Philistines didn't remove Saul from his throne. David didn't remove him from the throne. Saul did it himself. He fashioned his own downfall through his faithlessness and disobedience confirmed by suicide. So just to take it a step further, listen to 1 Chronicles chapter 10, 13 and 14. It says, Saul died because of his breach of faith. He broke faith with the Lord in that he did not keep the command of the Lord and also consulted a medium seeking guidance. Saul did not seek guidance from the Lord. Therefore, the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. Right, so what are we told about the downfall of Saul here? It's his breach of faith. And as 1 Samuel 2 is so helpful to remind us, it is the Lord who kills and brings to life. The Lord exalts and brings to dust. This is a hopeless death from a wicked and self-consumed man. Desired his own kingdom rather than God's kingdom. And it has a terrible ending. Verse 8, the next day, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Goboah. In verse 9, so they cut off his head. Right, the next day, war is over, the battle is over, the Philistines cut off, they chop off his head. Sound familiar? The final words uttered about Saul connect him with Dagon, the false god, and Goliath, the warrior of Gath. All three have their heads cut off, lumping them together as enemies of God and the seed of the serpent. Now we need to ask the question here, why does it matter to talk about his head getting chopped off? Well, it matters because this is God's death blow to the seed of the serpent to bring about the exaltation, the bringing up of the lowly one, David. So we're reminded here that God will have his rightful, true king. God will have his king in power, and this king will rule and reign over all his adversaries. The king will be victorious. Now, I just want us to feel the weight of this narrative. These are dark, dark chapters of the Bible. Saul dies a hopeless death, apart from God, dead in his sins, so close to the things of God, so close to God's word, and yet dies loving himself rather than loving the Lord his God. He's disobedient and foolishly proud in heart, displaying himself to be nothing other than a seed of the serpent, an offspring of the devil, a hater of God. So yes, this has been a tale of two kings, but more importantly, this has been a tale of two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the devil. So I want to ask you the question this morning, what kingdom do you reside in? 
Where do you reside? Who do you serve? This is the million dollar question because if you reside in the kingdom of the devil, then Saul's end is your end. The kingdom is a kingdom filled with death and despair here. A life apart from faith in Christ is one that has no hope beyond the grave. As a sinner, you're on the brink of death both now and for all eternity. And so as we've seen, it's God who guards, joyfully guards his faithful ones. But he also tears down his enemies. And so I appeal to you this morning... That if you're living for yourself, if you're living for the here and now, if you've rejected the Lord Jesus, then your end will be death and destruction. It's a horrific place to be. But there is another way. You do not need to die without hope. There's a king who calls you to come. He's a king who saves the weak, the wounded, and the sinful. He takes captives and he makes them heirs of his kingdom. As Colossians 1, 13-14 so gloriously recites, God the Father delivers us from the domain of darkness and transfers us to the kingdom of his beloved son, the true anointed king, Jesus, in whom we have what? We have redemption. And we have the forgiveness of sins. So then how do you enter the kingdom? Right? How do you get in with the king? Trust in Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Rest in his saving work. His perfect life lived. His blood shed. His victory won at the cross because only he has risen from the dead conquering sin, death, and the devil. So be clear this morning. The life lived apart from the Lord Jesus is a life dead in sin, without hope, bearing God's judgment for all eternity. But if your faith is in Jesus and his finished work on the cross, there is life. There is salvation. That's where victory is found. And yet the battle's still raging on, isn't it? The battle is raging until Christ the King, which is triumphant return, where that victory will be consummated on the last day. Which is why I started with D-Day and V-Day this morning. So D-Day is when Christ was victorious through death and resurrection. And yet the Christian is called to have hope in the midst of all this, in the midst of difficulty, until the ultimate and final victory day, V-Day, Christ's return. So the Christian life is not easy. No trials are certain, but we must orient ourselves just like David did. We must be strengthened in the Lord and in his might. The one who gives us surety of our conquering, which brings us to number three, more than conquerors. So to look at this, I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, and we are going to look at verse 35 onward. For the Christian must not lose hope, but we must strengthen ourselves in the Lord. So Paul's helpful in instructing us in this regard. Romans 8, starting in verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? 
Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, not anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We could stop there, couldn't we? Yes. Look at Paul's question in verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Answer, no one which is dependent on what's been said already in verses 31 and 32. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? The greatest promise in all the Bible, in my estimation, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Right, So on the basis of who God is and what he's done, we know full well that those who trust in the Lord Jesus will never, ever, ever be separated from the love of Christ. God gave up his son, therefore God will give us, his people, all things. Then notice the next question. These are the implied realities that Christians will endure, right? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword... Right? Will any of these hardships separate us from the love of Christ? Answer, absolutely not. V-Day is indeed plausible. It's guaranteed. So Paul's stressing here the beauty of Christ's unfailing tender love for his people. Even if they endure hardship. Even if they're sheep to be slaughtered. Even if they're in despair like David whose life was threatened by his own band of brothers. Christ's love remains. The list in verse 35, it just speaks of physical torment, right? Physical difficulty. But most certainly, it includes fears of job security as well. Car accidents, health scares, surgeries, bank fraud, money problems, marital issues, disease, depression, angry bosses, newborn babies, the terrible twos, death of loved ones, flat tires, homework, final exams, or even the fear of war. Right? All these are issues that can cause despair for the Christian. All these are issues that can, can give us fears, can bring about worry, doubt, despair. Maybe we share some of these concerns this morning. There are even some of us who can't and won't get more than a few hours sleep tonight for the difficulties that we're currently enduring. Many of us are well acquainted with hardship. We know it well. But I want you, dear believer, to be encouraged this morning. Yes, hardship is certain, but according to Romans 8, 37 through 39, there's great hope for the Christian because there's be surety of conquering. Look what I mean. Verse 36. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Listen to Paul's reply. Listen to what he says. One word. No. I just love that simple answer. No, your anguish, your despair, your distress will never separate you from the love of Christ. Why? 
Back to verse 37. Because in all of these, in all of these things, all of your hardships, we as the people of God are more than conquerors. How? How could we possibly be more than conquerors? Through him who loved us. That's our rescuer. It's through Jesus that we're more than conquerors. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord because of him. Right? That's what Paul's saying. Because of him we conquer. Because of him we will endure. Because of him we can have hope. And so just hear this sweet surety. According to Romans 8, we are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. We are conquerors over distress and hardship, not because we're tough, not because we're rough and ready to rumble, not because we're smart, not because we're more handsome or more pretty. No, we are more than conquerors through the king who conquered. So because Christ plundered the devil at the cross, we have hope that there will be full and final victory at the end of all things. When Christ returns in all his beauty, crushing sin, death, and the devil once for all. Just like those who fought in World War II. Fear was inevitable. Hardship was certain. But hope of victory could not be extinguished for these soldiers They had great hope in the face of hardship because they knew that V-Day was coming. Victory was going to come. And it did. But let me ask you this morning. What does hope in the face of hardship look like? Is it just an awareness of the waiting game, so to speak? Is it just a simple test of patience? Is it just sitting on our pockets for Jesus to return, waiting, looking at the clock and saying, is it time yet? No, this hope is a hope in action. This is the bloody battle for daily faith that rivals the onslaught of the enemy. Hope in action looks like waking up every single morning armed with God's word, strengthening ourselves in the promises of who God is and what he's accomplished. It looks like singing the truths of Christ conquering at the cross and his future conquering when he returns. Like from our closing song this morning, Glorious Christ, Jesus is seated now in heaven. He's enthroned at God's right hand. He's coming back again and all, we will, all will be all right when he appears. You see, hope in our conqueror is not passive, it's active. We need to be a people who soak in the scriptures, meditating day and night, knowing full and final victory is on the horizon because of the one who conquers. So because Jesus conquered sin, death, and the devil at the cross on his proverbial D-Day, we can have great hope in the midst of hardship. Because through him we are more than conquerors. We are longing with great anticipation in the here and now for the day where victory is finally had once and for all and for all eternity. Revelation 12.10 gives us a glorious picture of what's in store for God's people. The Apostle John writes, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation... And the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown 
down, who accuses them day and night before our God, and they have conquered him. How? By the blood of the Lamb. And by the word of his testimony. For they have not loved their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Rejoice. For you've conquered. Praise God for this glorious picture. We may be battered by the realities of our circumstances. We may be filled with grief and despair. We may suffer great loss, but do not despair. Do not lose hope. Do not fear, dear believer. Go to the Lord. May he strengthen you in his word. We are more than conquerors through our king, the Lord Jesus, the one who loved us and gave himself for us, setting all the captives free that we might have hope both now and for all eternity. Allow me to pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for who he is and what he's done. The reality that in our text this morning that King David points us forward to the greater king who conquered sin, death, and the devil. The one who set the captives free. So Lord, we do pray that as we navigate difficulty in the here and now, as we're awaiting the Lord Jesus' return, Father, we do pray that we would have strengthened hope. That you give us eyes to see what you have done in the past through the Lord Jesus. And that we look forward by faith at what you will do through Christ at the end of all things. Father, we do pray that we would endure. But that we would endure well. That we would fight. That we would be strengthened in the Lord. For that is where our strength. That is where our help. That is where our salvation resides. So Lord, give us the grace to be active. To be fighting by faith. Until your son returns, we pray all these things in Christ's precious name. Amen.